for prayer. Um, if you're new with us, like I said, it's great to have you here. You've joined us almost at the end of a really cool series you've been in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. We've been journeying for some time in the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's really been a fantastic journey. Tonight, we're, we're in chapter 10. We're, we're in the last chapter, which is essentially a very theological and Christological chapter. The focus is on Jesus. It's very theological, and the author of Hebrews has been journeying in this very theological way and Christological way, Jesus-centered way, all through the book of Hebrews, and he lands now in chapter 10 with the last theological section. Then he moves on to more practical uh, applications for our lives in, as a result of and in light of what he shared with us in the previous 10 chapters. Um, but just a quick recap, the reason why the author of the Hebrews writes to the Hebrew church is because they were facing real persecution because of their faith. What we know is that the majority of the readers that received this letter were Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians that had become Christians, and they put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but they were being persecuted because of that. And they were being tempted because of persecution to renounce their faith in Christ and go back to the old way of Judaism. And so the author to the Hebrews is writing and he's saying, listen, Jesus is so much better. He is far superior than anything that the Jewish system had for you. And he compares Jesus to the angels. He compares Jesus to Moses and, and, and the law that was given at Mount Sinai. He, he compares Jesus to the Levitical priesthood, and he compares Jesus to the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple. He says, you know, we had this temple where one person once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies, but now we all get to enter into the Holy of Holies because of Jesus. He is our temple. He is our access into that most holy place. And tonight, he doesn't stop. But each, each section of Hebrews has really had this beautiful way of glorifying Jesus and exalting Jesus, and tonight is no different because tonight what the author does is he compares Jesus to the sacrifices that were meant to or were given during the Old Testament Levitical system. He compares Jesus to those sacrifices and he says Jesus is far superior. He's far superior to any sacrifice that was given or ever could be given. And therefore, hold on, don't turn away. In other words, he establishes that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice given once for all. I think as I was preparing for this, uh, just really significant, this part for me, um, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but when I first became a Christian, and, and even before I came to know Jesus, I, I had huge conscious, conscience issues. There was a lot of guilt that I carried. And even as a young Christian, I wrestled with this idea of total freedom, and I struggled with my conscience sometimes because I knew I'd done some really terrible stuff. And I think we can all relate to that because at some point in our lives, some point or another, we've wrestled with this idea of, you know, the stuff in our past and, and, and whether we've really been freed from it. We wonder sometimes if it's going to come out from where it's been hidden and whether people are going to find out about who we really are. You know, it lurks in the shadows and we forget about it, but then somehow it raises its head again. And we haven't really dealt with it and we feel condemned and we feel really ugly about it. And the worst part is we, have, we actually wonder, and this is the more serious part, we wonder how God feels about it. And as Christians, whether we've really been forgiven for that. And we wonder whether God's going to bring out our dirty laundry again on the day of judgment and hang it in front of everybody to see and call us out on it. And I think there are a lot of people in the church who walk with their heads down who walk with a sense of condemnation 
and a lack of freedom that is meant to be ours in Jesus because they haven't quite understood this passage in Hebrews, which is why the author's writing and he's saying this is not the way God intends us to live. I think people, which used to be me, but people who are carrying this, that praise God I've worked through, there are people who need to know that Jesus and the price that he paid at the cross was once for all and is sufficient to take away their guilty conscience. It's sufficient to deal with the stuff that you've been through and have done. It's sufficient to deal with the worst skeleton in your closet because nothing is greater than Jesus. But we have to live out of that truth. And so, and so this is going to be a really encouraging message for people if you're in that space. It's going to be a really encouraging message for us, even if we're not in that space, because it's going to be a reminder to us of the sufficiency of Jesus and the price that he's paid. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to read, and then we're going to unpack. We're going to read section by section and unpack. We've broken, I've broken tonight up into four sections. I'm not going to give you the headings now, just give you them as we go, um, but essentially four sections. And the first one, the first one is called foreshadowing, or a foreshadow. Right, and, and here's what the author to the Hebrew says. Verse 1 to 4, he says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, the law, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What the author starts with, right, is he says, guys, just remember this. The sacrificial system that has been put in place by God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant is just a shadow. It is a foreshadow of greater things to come. Now, we all know that a shadow can be viewed as a bad thing, and you know, if something lurks in the shadows, or you, that, that person's a bit shady or shadowy, right? We, it's, it's not really a good indictment on the person's character. But a shadow isn't necessarily a bad thing all the time. You can rest in the shadow of a tree, and we call it shade, and it's nice. Right? And you can also learn some stuff from a shadow. So if I was standing around the corner and the sun was at my back and you saw my shadow on the ground, you could learn some stuff about me. But it's a bit skewed. You can maybe see whether I'm wearing a cap. You can maybe see what I'm doing with my arms or how I'm standing or my posture. You can learn some stuff, but it's not, can't get a complete knowledge of who I am and what I look like and what I'm like from my shadow because the shadow is not my substance. So the shadow on the ground is just a shadow that I'm casting. I am the person casting the shadow. And the author is saying to the guys about the sacrificial system that it's just a shadow. It's not the real substance of the good stuff that's coming. So I need you to understand this. It doesn't mean that the old covenant, covenant and the sacrificial system was bad or evil. It just means that it was incomplete and insufficient to bring total cleansing and forgiveness of sin. It was incomplete. In fact, it was meant to be a reminder. Instead of being something that would actually cleanse you, it was meant to act like a mirror. When, when you saw this happening and when the sacrifices were being made, it was meant to be a reminder to you daily and annually that you are sinful and your sin needs to be atoned for. See, the covenant sacrifices were meant to be a, 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 a visual graphic and sometimes gruesome 
reminder of the price of sin and the payment that was necessary and how serious our sin is. And I think sometimes we overlook this because we're not partaking in sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament, whereas for them, daily before them and yearly, there was a festival called Yom Kippur, which was a once a year um, festival or um, celebration where um, the it was an atonement festival where the sins of God's people um, were atoned for by the high priest in the Holy of Holies. And that happened for them regularly but as a reminder of sin. And we sometimes, we're detached from that because that doesn't happen for us. We don't need to do that anymore. But it was meant to be a serious reminder to the people of the seriousness of sin. But the author says, although that happened, I want you to understand that it could never truly remove sin and guilt never really do that and that's evidenced by the fact that year in and year out and day in and day out it needed to happen over and over and over again and then he goes on to say this and by the way if you worried or if you're questioning whether this was actually something that was meant to remove sin he says no it's not because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin no animal's blood spilt can permanently remove or effectively remove the sin of man Right? No one can atone for us. Instead, God designed this sacrificial system as a reminder to us and as a foreshadowing of the coming of His Son who would be the substance of the good stuff, the actual good thing. This was just to get you to look forward to that and to yearn for that and to long for that. And as God, when He came, His sacrifice was infinite. In fact, I heard this really cool statement. When Jesus died on the cross for us, that sacrifice made wasn't just enough to pay for our sins. In fact, it was an overpayment. It was an overpayment for us, and He so sufficiently dealt with our sin at the cross. And as man, as perfect man, He sacrificed Himself and atones for our sin in a way that the blood of animals never could and so he starts off he says guys don't go back to the old system why because it is just a foreshadow of the good things you've embraced the good thing it's just a foreshadow jesus is the substance of the good stuff and then he moves on to what essentially is point number two he says jesus was the perfect obedient sacrifice verse 6 to 10 he says this well from five sorry therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but, my, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What the author does right in the beginning of this section is he puts an Old Testament psalm into the mouth of Jesus and says, Jesus said this. But this psalm, this prophetic utterance from Jesus preceded Jesus. And so what the author is establishing is the pre-existence of Jesus. See, when the psalm was written, it was a prophetic utterance. It was, this is what Jesus has said. Before the foundations of the earth was laid, Jesus has said this. 
And so when Jesus comes, the author understands that this psalm it was Jesus speaking and he spoke it before we heard him speak it. It was in his mouth already, which means Jesus was. It means he is and he always will be. And there's something really significant about that. There are three really significant points. One is this. It means that the cross was not an accident. The sacrifice of Jesus was the direct will of God. It wasn't some unforeseen tragedy that God somehow had to work through or work around or make work for his good and for his glory. It wasn't some temporary setback that God had to now try and figure out because he hadn't planned it. No, from before the creation of the world, before any foundations were laid, Jesus already had said, I will come and I will do your will. And your will is that I go to the cross and that I be a perfect sacrifice for those who will be redeemed. The cross was a predetermined plan before the beginning of time. And the Son would come and fulfill God's purposes. He would fulfill that perfect plan and be the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God because of the sin of people. He would be the perfect payment. By coming into the world... And going to the cross, Jesus not only provided the sacrifice, but he stands as an example of perfect obedience to the Father. Perfect obedience. That's why the author twice reiterates, he twice says in this passage, and Jesus said, I will be obedient to your will. Your will I will do. I have come to do your will, O God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. That he had one purpose. He had come to do the will of the Father. He didn't get sidetracked. In fact, one of his disciples said, no, we don't want you to die. Remember, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because the enemy is always going to try and sidetrack us and derail us from fulfilling God's purposes and being obedient to him. And then in Luke 22, verse 42, this, this won't come up. Jesus says, not my will be done, but yours. See, as fully human, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's agonizing to the point of sweating blood over the cross and the coming pain and suffering that he's going to have to endure. And he says to the Father, if you can take this from me, take it from me. But if it is not your will, then let your will be done, not mine. We can't imagine how difficult it was for the sinless Son of God to be made a sin offering for us. I don't think we'll ever be able to understand the significance and the depth of that sacrifice and what it meant to the Father. But his obedience stands in ex as an example to us of how we are meant to pursue our King. We're meant to pursue the Lord with utmost obedience. And we don't decide in the moment of temptation to be obedient to God. We resolve before we're tempted that I'm going to be obedient to God. And in a moment of temptation, we choose, obviously, to be obedient, but we decide beforehand God, it is your will that will be done in my life and no other. Your will and not mine. Your will and not mine. The second thing that's really significant about the verses we've just read is that Christ's obedience to God's will at the cross set aside the Old Testament sacrifices. It put them aside. It renders them useless, null and void. It says he takes away the first, speaking about the Old Testament sacrifices, to establish the second, which is Christ's death on the cross, the will of God for a new covenant and a new, what we call dispensation, a new era. When the psalm states that God did not desire or take pleasure in sacrifices, it reflects this frequent theme in the Old Testament where people would have to give sacrificially, outwardly, but God was never satisfied with that because at the end of the day, God didn't actually want the blood of bulls and goats 
God actually wanted a pure heart. See, the old, the old Jewish system was that you would need to be circumcised to be, called, to be part of God's people. And that physical, fleshly act would set you apart and distinguish you from other people groups. But they began to believe that that act in and of itself is what made you holy and made you acceptable to God. But then later on in the scriptures it says, I want you to circumcise your hearts. I want a real heart change. It's not the outward sacrifices that I want. It's not the physical act that makes you clean. It's an inward change. It's a heart change. God is displeased, thoroughly displeased when people just go through the motions. The outward motions of legalism. But in their hearts they, they harbor sin or are unwilling to forgive or unwilling to repent or unwilling to renounce their love for things that are not God or of the kingdom. In modern terms, it looks like this. Back in the day, it was perhaps circumcision or um, the ritualistic laws of cleansing. Today, it looks like, oh, I've come to church, and so I'm okay with God. Or I go to Bible study, or I read my Bible, and that makes me okay with God. Or I call myself a Christian, or I give to the poor. I raise my hands in worship, perhaps. I say Christian things. I listen to Christian music. And all of that is good, but if it is done as a legalistic act and you think that those things in and of themselves are pleasing to God as sacrifices to Him, we've got it wrong. As God says it's your inside that has to change. It's the motive for why you do those things that's more important. Is your heart circumcised? Is your heart pure? And when Jesus came, He took away those sacrifices and he makes us from the inside out pure. At the cross, Jesus supremely fulfilled and replaced the old system. You don't need external sacrifices. You just need Jesus. You just need Jesus. There's no reason to go back. The third thing that's really important, or third point that he makes, or significant sort of truth that we can take out of the verses is, is this, that by Christ's obedience to God's will at the cross, we receive perfect standing before God once and for all. Right, the author to the Hebrews uses the word sanctified or made holy, like I said, to refer to inward cleansing. And because of Jesus, we've been made fit to come into the presence of God. We can just enter in. There's no ongoing sacrifice that has to be made. The idea that we've been made holy, in the Greek, it's a past perfect tense which signifies a past action which has ongoing results. We were made holy and we are continuously being made holy. We are saved once and for all and we are being saved. And Jesus does that work. And we, we compare this with the often repeated Old Testament sacrifices to the one offering of Jesus on the cross. And we know that because of the one offering of Jesus, we stand before the Lord perfect and sinless. Whereas before, it was this constant ongoing thing of having to have our sins cleansed by the blood of bulls and goats, which never really did anything anyway. It was just a reminder of what was coming or a foreshadowing of what was coming. Point number three for tonight is this. Complete and total forgiveness is in Jesus. And these are all really linked, but the author starts to unpack them in a little bit more depth. In verse 11 to verse 18, here's what he says. Day after day, 
Every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat at the right hand of, the, of, of God. And since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. What the author does is he takes and he makes a comparison in verse 11 and verse 12. He puts these two together and he juxtaposes them and he, and he draws this comparison. He says, in, in, in the old days, the priests in the tabernacle were always standing. They were always offering sacrifices. And this image of them standing is meant to portray this idea that their work was never done. It was ongoing, ongoing. And you can almost see and hear the futility in their efforts. As he says, they were always standing. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There was no rest for the priest because they constantly had to work and then he says but Jesus when he came and he made his sacrifice he sat down he sat down at the right hand of the father which signifies that his work was done that his work was finished Jesus is not sitting down because he's lazy Jesus is not seated doing nothing Resting on his laurels. He's interceding for us as our great high priest. But the sacrifice does not keep having to be made over and over again. He made it once for all. It is done. Contrast that with the priests of the Levitical sacrificial system where their work was never done because they could never satisfy the wrath of God. Versus Jesus who when he did it was done once and for all, complete. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father signifying this work is complete. That should really blow our minds. That we have this great high priest whose work is done. Whose sacrifice was sufficient and enough. And that because of him we can come confidently and boldly to the throne of God. That sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's again this idea that Jesus never has to repeat again what he's done. And confidence in him is never misplaced because of that. Confidence in outward sacrifices is always misplaced. Confidence in, confidence in anything else other than Jesus is misplaced confidence. Confidence in Jesus is never misplaced. And that's what the author's trying to drive home to these guys. He's going, don't leave this faith. Don't walk away. Don't turn away and go back to the old system. It was just a shadow. The work there was never done. This is the substance of the good things God promised us. His name is Jesus. His work is done. You can be confident in this. The author could have stopped there. But then he adds verse 13 onwards. And he says, since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. There's a time that's coming when, when the enemies of God will bow their knees and confess that he, in fact, is Lord. You've got to ask why. Why does the author include that? Why doesn't he just leave it? And I, and I think there's a couple of reasons why he includes that in this passage. One of them is this, that perhaps his readers were becoming discouraged by the fact that Jesus had not yet come back again. 
and that somehow the cross represented a defeat for God. Not against the enemy, but for himself, a defeat, that he suffered defeat. Perhaps unbelieving Jewish friends of these guys who had become Christ followers were taunting them by saying, you believe in a crucified Messiah, and he's not coming back. You say he's resurrected, but he's not coming back. You're facing persecution and martyrdom for his name. Where is he? And I want to remind you tonight, church, that we are going to face and are facing tough times as Christians. It's not going to get easier. And I don't say that because I want to spread doom and gloom. I want to be a realist and go, it's not easy to follow Jesus. Jesus says the way is narrow and not many people find it. Why? Because you've got to give your life literally for Jesus. But he's encouraging them and he's saying, listen, just hold on because one day, one day, Jesus is coming back again. And so be encouraged that, that he's not coming now and he's not returning now is not a sign that he's been defeated. It's a sign that he's waiting for something else. And we're going to get to that just now. But the second reason why he adds this is maybe just as a subtle warning to his readers that you don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he comes back. And so just remember, Jesus is coming back again. And he's going to establish a kingdom that's far greater and far more powerful than any other kingdom that's ever come before. Far greater in splendor, in wisdom, in peace, and in glory. Jesus is coming back. And the enemies of God, it says later on in chapter 10, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So hold on to your faith. Persevere, persevere and pursue Jesus. So what is Jesus waiting for? I think... Uh, my wife often says this to me. I just wish Jesus would come back again. We read stuff. We read stuff in the news. And she goes, oh, Lord Jesus, just come back again. And I'm going, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I don't know if we think that day is going to be as cool as we think it's going to be. I think it's going to be terrifying when Jesus comes back again. The sky is going to rip open. The archangel of God is going to be blowing the trumpet of God. And the armies of heaven are going to follow him in. I don't think we've seen anything more terrifying. So I'm like, okay, Lord, you can hold off a little bit. No. My wife, she's, she's praying for Jesus to come back again. But there's a really significant reason why Jesus is holding off. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Again, it's not going to come up, but this is what it says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. The Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, but that everyone come to repentance. You see, the reason why Jesus is holding off is because he knows that the longer he holds off, the more people enter the kingdom. The longer he holds off, the more we as his people get an opportunity or should be taking every opportunity to preach and teach and declare the glory of God and have people come to a place of intimate relationship with him so that their eternity is secure. See, we can be so selfish and self-centered, and I don't think it's wrong to go, Lord, come back again. But I think sometimes we don't really realize understand the implications of that prayer for people. And I think about my family. I think about un, unsaved friends, unsaved relatives who I desperately want to see come to know Jesus. And the longer Jesus holds off, the more chance there is for them to come to know him. And Jesus going, I want more. There's more. If it was you on the other side, if it was you on the other side, and you came to know Jesus before he came back again, which a lot of us have. 
we certainly are grateful for the fact that he hasn't or didn't come before we were saved. And there's so many more people out there. There's so many more people that need to hear about Jesus and our role and responsibility is to go and make disciples of the nations, to teach people about Jesus, to teach them to obey him so that their eternity is secure. Life is not about the external stuff that we can so often make it about. Life is about the kingdom of God. That is the one sole purpose of man, and that's to glorify Jesus. So he's waiting. Then the last thing the author says in this section is a quote from Jeremiah. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The reason why I think he quotes that part of Jeremiah is to deal with some criticism that might have been coming the way of these Jewish believers. And the criticism probably went something like this. If you set aside the Jewish sacrificial system, you're going to end up with a culture and a society that's lawless. We need these sacrifices to remind us of sin. But the comeback to that, the rebuttal to that is, you are still sinful. Even though you do these things, your heart is still impure. In Isaiah 58, it speaks about people fasting and going through the outward religious motions, yet still they punch each other with wicked fists and they fight with each other. The sense in which people make the outward stuff more significant than the inward stuff. And he says, no, don't you know that God is going to be the one who's going to put his law on their hearts and people who love Jesus are going to be responding to God out of what he's done in their hearts. He's going to have changed them from the inside out. And then he adds this point. It sort of is directly to his point in chapter 10. And he says this, and because of what God does in them through Jesus, their sins and lawless deeds he's going to remember no more. You see, he always remembered your sin in the old system. There was always need for you to re-sacrifice and re-sacrifice and re-sacrifice. Your sin was always before you and your sin was always before him. But because of Jesus and the renewing of your heart and the completeness and the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus, you're made new and you're made whole. And now because of that, I choose to remember your sin no more. And God's forgetting our sin does not mean he's a forgetful God and somehow suffers with Alzheimer's. What it means is that God has deliberately chosen not to hold your sin against you, which you so deserve to have held against you. But Jesus paid that price. The Old Testament sacrifices because of Jesus are rendered worthless and obsolete. How can you want to go back to that system? So how can you want to in light of such a great Savior, in such a in the light of such a great sacrifice. Through the cross, believers are in and under a new covenant and they're able to experience total forgiveness. And so I just want to speak to this issue that I spoke about in the beginning. Your conscience is meant to be cleared and cleansed. I was going to ask my wife to share this testimony. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. But the first time I met Mandy, who really, really saw her, she was crying in the back of her room, Right? on a young adult camp that we were on. And God had been doing some really amazing work in her life and in our lives. And there was a time we were really were experiencing the Holy Spirit. And I can remember thinking, wow, this young girl, there's problems. Right? 
And Jesus needs to do a work in our hearts. And it was a prejudice thing. But I didn't know at that time that God had been doing such a work, but Mandy was still struggling with a lot of condemnation, a lot of guilt, and a lot of this idea that she wasn't worthy and wasn't good enough. But God had done the work in her. And so she comes up for prayer. And I can remember I was being prayed for. Um, the person speaking was speaking about the Holy Spirit and, and, and baptism in the Spirit and, and a renewing of our minds and understanding and, and like a stepping into the freedom that Christ brings. And I remember just going, yes, I want that. And I went forward for prayer and nothing fantastic happened with me, right? In that moment, God did a really good work. But, but in that moment, nothing fantastic happened. But then Mandy is standing next to me and she's being prayed for, and all of a sudden, she just starts to laugh. She just starts to laugh uncontrollably. And if you know my wife, you'll know that she doesn't like to embarrass herself, right? So probably even me sharing this, we're going to have to debrief at home tonight, right? <laughs> but, but she just starts to laugh, and she was crying, and now she starts to laugh. And she starts to laugh in a way that isn't fake but he's really deeply genuine. And when we spoke to him and I asked her about it afterwards, she said, this is what happened. She was carrying all this stuff. And when she came for prayer, her hands were clenched and closed like this. And the people praying for her said, Mandy, just relax and just release and just open your hands. Because sometimes we can come to God so scared of what God is going to do to us because of our past and our past sins. And we clench our hands and she was like this. It wasn't an attitude of receiving at all. And then she just opened her hands and this person said to her, a friend of ours, Matt, said to her, Mandy, when you come to Jesus, he doesn't just wash the stains off of the old shirt. He doesn't take that shirt and wash it and make it clean. He takes it off and he gives you a completely new shirt. And as soon as that truth hit home, which was really powerfully pushed home by the spirits, Mandy just began to weep and laugh and experience that freedom in Jesus that was hers, but she hadn't stepped into. And I think there are a lot of people who now, tonight, need to know you actually need to step into this thing and trust God and live out of the freedom that is yours in Jesus. So your sin is dealt with. The price has been paid. There's no longer anything you need to do. You don't have to convince God that He loves you. He knows He does. He's communicated that in the best way He could possibly ever communicate, and that's giving of Himself to win you. And if you ask me, the price that Jesus paid for what he gets, I think he's a bit shortchanged. Not that we're not worthy, but that his price was so great and, and he gets us. And he says, I love you. I think there are people who walk around with a guilty conscience and you actually need to repent and you lay that before the Lord because you're constantly questioning the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice and you're walking around with a guilty conscience and you're being ineffective for the kingdom because you're ashamed to come before the Lord. And you're coming before the Lord with clenched hands and closed fists not wanting to receive because you think you're unworthy and he's speaking over you that you're worthy, that you've been bought at a price. My banner over you is love. You're worthy. Isn't that wonderful? But don't we want to step into that freedom? And not just people walking around with a guilty conscience, but all of us daily need to be living out of that place. It doesn't matter what you've done. He's paid the price. It's sufficient. Then here's our response. I'm going to end off with this tonight. speaks about how we need to respond. Remember when three weeks ago we spoke about the warning passages and we dealt with that, can you unchoose God or not? And we, we said that each warning passage consists of people that the author is writing to, a sin that they mustn't fall into, an encouragement and an exhortation, 
uh, as a means to avoid the sin that you shouldn't fall into and then the tragedy of what would happen to you if you did fall into that. This is the exhortation. This is the practical application of what he's just said. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to, toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here are a few practical things that we need to do in light of this great sacrifice that is ours in Jesus. One, draw near to God. I don't know how I would be able to survive if daily I wasn't able to come into the presence of God. We all know there's so much stuff we have to deal with. So much stuff about who I am still scares the daylights out of me. There's still so much work that God has to do in me but I can come to him confidently with a sincere heart, knowing that it's not dependent on my works and who I am, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus that I'm able to come to God. And so I come with a sincere heart going, God, this is who I am. I know that's who you are. You're my great high priest. I want to draw near to me, to you. And as I do that, I know you promised to draw near to me. Let's do this thing together. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That encourages believers to do that. And as you do that, so you are encouraged by God, empowered by God, edified by the Lord. And we become in full assurance of faith. God's word is clear that it's impossible to please God without faith. In fact, the next chapter in Hebrews is all about faith. So God says, in light of the sacrifice, come knowing, come believing, come in faith. Faith is not a blind hope. So often we think faith is just not seeing at all and not having any evidence for anything. No, God has given us so much evidence. Our faith is not substanceless. Our faith that we come to God in is full of evidence. And we come knowing that God will do what he says he will do. And we come knowing that Jesus has paid this price and is sufficient. Don't doubt. Have confidence in God. We need to walk in this confidence. We need to come in full assurance of faith because we've had our hearts sprinkled and cleaned from an evil conscience. We are going to battle with doubt and we're going to have to overcome that. The enemy is going to try and condemn us. One of the easy ways to, to, to know the difference between condemnation and conviction, conviction is a constant thing that the Holy Spirit does. He's convicting us all the time of godliness and righteousness, causing us to move towards it and of sin. Conviction draws you towards God wow, this thing isn't of the Lord. I, I need to get there. I need to repent. I need to get to God. Conviction reminds you of who you are. Conviction reminds you of the righteousness of Christ and, and who we are in Him and the righteousness that we have in Him. Condemnation draws you away from God. Condemnation gets you to believe that God doesn't love me anymore, that this thing God can't deal with, that this thing no one else is struggling with, that this thing, if, only, if people knew and if God knew, that, that I would be totally cast out and so I'm not worthy. That's what condemnation is and that's what the enemy does to God's people. God has cleansed us. He's taken your guilt away. And if you're still feeling guilt, if you're still feeling shame 
and embarrassment from past stuff, perhaps you need to voice that and repent of that stuff before somebody and step into the freedom that is yours in Jesus. Perhaps you're holding on to stuff that I know for a fact God's word says you need to be, let go, be letting go of because it's done and paid for. If you've come to a place where you know Jesus, there should be no guilt, shame, and embarrassment that you're holding on to. We should be living in freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, it says in Galatians. Not for bondage. Hold fast to your confession is the next thing you do. Hold fast to your hope without wavering. Stand firm. Stand firm, hold fast. Consider, then he says, how to encourage one another or stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Here's the amazing thing about what God has done for us as his people. He's made us need each other. I need you and you need me. Not because we are anything great in and of ourselves, but because the Holy Spirit is in you and he gives you something I need. And he gives me a gift that glorifies him that you need. And we edify one another and we spur one another on and we call things out of each other and iron sharpens iron and we hold firm to our faith. Here's my brother and my sister contending with me in the faith. This gives me hope. This encourages me. We've rallied around the booker in a way that we haven't for many years. And people have celebrated this. And Facebook has been, it's just exploded. I don't think anything else has been tweeted and there's been no thing more Facebook than this thing. Right? And we've encouraged one another. People are singing Shosha Loza and all sorts of stuff on planes and it's great and you get goosebumps. And we've encouraged one another towards unity. I think God's people need to reach that place again where we're doing that for one another. Like we could just do that for one another. Because of who Jesus is, we'd be strengthened. And the last one is this, practical outworking is this, don't give up meeting together, which some are in the habit of doing. Church is not perfect. We're a family of people with imperfections. And there's that old saying that if you leave and you find a church that's perfect, don't go there because you'll just mess it up. Right? People leave church and move church and stop going to church because church isn't what they want it to be and we want to pick and choose and design church for our specific needs. And at the end of the day, you don't get to do that with family. You don't get to do that. You work through your indifferences. You work through your disagreements. And we don't disfellowship over stuff that is essentially what we call a pen issue or a pencil issue. We work through that. We love one another. Don't give up meeting together. Don't forsake that for selfish reasons. Don't pretend like you love God and you love his people and then say you don't like the church. The church is going to get stuff wrong because people get stuff wrong. But we are the bride of Christ. We're the body. And we love each other and, and we work through our stuff. I am more encouraged, despite the differences I have with other believers, I'm more encouraged when I come together and I meet with believers than I am when I meet by myself with the Lord sometimes. Those places are deep and they're necessary, but I'm so enriched by the body. I'm so enriched by other people's gifts and what they have to carry. And I think there are a lot of people who need to step into more of what God has given them. You don't understand your value and your worth in the kingdom. But don't give up meeting together. Don't leave church. Deal with it like you would with family. Right? Honor one another. Let's work through our stuff. Let's show the world that God's family is far greater than any institution that's established by men. Right? And that's what he says in chapter 10 to these guys says don't leave jesus you're just going to go back to a system that was never really able to save you anyway 
It was a system designed to show you that what you are currently in is the substance of all things good that God has given to us and God intended for us to have. Let's pray. Father, as, as we begin to worship you this evening, I pray that we would worship in spirit and in truth, with hearts full and grateful, filled to overflowing. Lord, I pray that where there are people tonight who've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, Lord, where you've reminded them of guilt and shame that they're carrying, where there is fear and resistance to let go because of what people might think or what they think you might think of them. Lord, I pray, come and break that now in Jesus' name. May there be freedom and release from bondage, freedom from guilt and shame. And Lord, a stepping into new things. May people release their hands, Lord, in the Spirit. Open their hearts and receive you, our tender and loving God, the one who deals with us gently, who meets our needs and is sufficient, Lord, to take away the stuff that damages and breaks and causes death and destruction. Lord, may we be a free people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and break open the atmosphere, that there'd be a peace, Lord, to weep, a peace to laugh, a peace, Lord, to be able to be in your presence on our knees, peace to pray out and to use our gifts for the glory of your name. And in all things, Lord, may we be looking to glorify you. May we hang on to you and hold on to you. May we persevere in Jesus' name. Just as we begin to worship, and maybe some of you have a testimony to come and share or a word to bring. I want to encourage you to bring it to us in the front. I want to encourage you if there's something that you want to minister into the body tonight, to come and do that. Don't hold back. Don't be ashamed. We'll facilitate a space if it's appropriate for you to be able to bring what God has called you to bring. We want to do that. We want to minister to one another. We want you to be able to enter into a place where you're being obedient to God. Don't think that we can't disrupt worship for the sake of something that God wants to do. I want to encourage you that that's what we want to encourage you to do. Right? Cool. Let's worship together. Let's stand together.